the word philanthropy has a connotation of wealthy individual. Everybody gives. I haven't seen anybody that doesn't give, even if it's just a dime to someone on the street. People want to give in a way that makes a difference. Through the tools that we're creating, we're helping people be philanthropists in a, in a way that's actually impactful. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Michael Thatcher, who is the CEO of Charity Navigator. Charity Navigator is a research tool and platform for discovering which charities align with your passions and values. Charity Navigator evaluates nonprofits using data from the IRS and others to create ratings so you can pick where to give. You should listen if you're interested in leaders in the technology and nonprofit space and you think that advancing that space helps improve the country. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Michael Thatcher of Charity Navigator. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Michael, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Hi, uh, Michael Thatcher. I'm the president and CEO of Charity Navigator. And I've been leading Charity Navigator for almost eight years now. And prior to that, I spent a little over 15 years at Microsoft, the last 10 of which as a chief technology officer in their public sector accounts, looking after Africa, Middle East, and greater Asia. It's nice to see someone who came out of that career working in the nonprofit space. I want to ask you a few more biographical questions just to understand who I'm talking to. Tell me where you grew up and what kind of family. I grew up in the New York area for the most part, New York City, Long Island, uh, Rockland County. My father was an ocean engineer and a mathematical modeler. My mother was a, a violinist. I was kind of drawn in, in directions around both the arts and computational sciences. So even though I mowed the lawn for my dad when I was a teenager, I also did some coding for him. And he taught me how to, how to write software, which became my livelihood for many years. When I got out of high school, I was determined to be a musician and actually have a degree in music from Columbia. And first 10 years of my life actually were running a nonprofit. And it was a dance company that I started with my wife and I was writing music for it and was also dancing for it and then was supporting my art habit through software because we couldn't make a living with our company. We had a great run with 10 years. We toured all over Europe, the United States and South America, but 
once the family came, we needed bigger resources from a financial perspective. And so she kept dancing and running a different company, and I got technical jobs, and that eventually got me into Microsoft. You have to be the first person I've talked to with a BA in music and doing all those years of dance who ends up as a CTO at a high level for a big tech company like that. That's quite fascinating. I think you'll find there are a lot of musicians that end up in... There is a math music nexus, isn't there? And it's particularly, I'm not a great performer. I was a composer and I was writing music. And so it's kind of how all the different bits come together. That's what was really exciting me as well as orchestration and uh, that software. Yeah. I started programming pretty young from my generation, I guess. And I, 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 there was something very attractive about that too, almost in an artistic sense in a, like there's something about the feedback that you get from telling a machine what to do and having it do it and doing it well, because one way of writing it is not nearly as elegant as another. Yeah. There's a real beauty to coding. When you see the machine do something for you, it's exciting. It is. It, it totally is. How did you land at Microsoft? What was that transition? How did you find a job there and find your way in that organization? One piece of the puzzle I didn't give you was that part of the, the tech work I was doing was, and this was a link through my dad, was I, I got work in oceanographic research as a technical assistant to the scientific party. And while I was dancing, I would go to sea with researchers for six weeks, make some money doing that, and then I could live off of that. After being freelance, working for science, I actually ended up taking a full-time job at Woods Hole Oceanographic as the tech on one of their ships. I got to play with some of the coolest robots in the world. And what was neat was that was my f- formal informal training in coding, in devices, in data collection. And actually sort of a precursor to evaluation and ratings, because all we cared about was collecting data, knowing where we got the data, validating the data, and then making sense of the data. And so I did that for two years. I came home from a trip. It was around Christmas time. And I got an ultimatum from my wife saying, new job, new wife, you decide. Wow. And, and so I resigned. And listens to things like that. <laughs> okay, we're done. She definitely got my vote. And we went, suddenly found ourselves out in Seattle, Washington, where I could get a job working for an instrument manufacturer. And I am getting to your question. I see you well on your way. <laughs> yep. We get to Seattle. My wife starts a new company. We have dinner with her business partner and husband, and I start talking to the husband. Wait, her business partner and that person's husband, I assume. That person's husband, yeah. right. Yeah. Now, um, this his name was Patrick. Patrick Thompson was a schema designer working on the Windows team at Microsoft. And basically, we had a really interesting conversation about designing schema design and how to instrument you know, a research vessel. And, you know, during the conversation, he said, we're working on getting into enterprise systems management at Microsoft. Do you know anybody that would be interested in doing work like this? I'm trying to find, I need a schema designer to work for me. And I was like, sorry, you know, Patrick, nobody likes Microsoft. I can't imagine anybody that would want to work for you at this time. This is sort of late nineties. And I was a bit of a Unix Linux snob at that point. 
a few weeks later, I suddenly thought, you know, I think that was an indirect opportunity that I ought to do. <laughs> and so I did. And I ended up joining the Windows team and spent, spent quite a bit of time with them on enterprise systems management. What was it like once you were inside there? Were your prejudices well-founded? I think so. If you think about early, early Windows was not a easily networked system. It had security flaws. It had a lot of issues. I joined the Windows team right around Windows XP, and then it, it was Code Red and Nimda. I don't know if you remember those viruses. Vaguely. Yeah, early 2000s. But we were essentially, we shut down and spent a year rebuilding Windows after some of these viruses. What I liked about the organization back then was, you know, it was it was scrappy. We were trying to do stuff. It actually stopped cold at that point and said, all right, we need to do a reset and we need to get this right. How did you find your way into the, the international CTO jobs that you had? So my work in schema design, I was doing a lot of international standards work, working in some of the different tech standards bodies. And I got very interested in that and eventually moved from the Windows team into the CTO's office working on standards. And that team was then reorged into the intellectual property and licensing group as part of the legal team, which was an odd fit for me. Spent a couple of years in that, working a lot with how Microsoft was interfacing with Linux. And so it was really trying to get to the, the open source side of things. And I did more and more in that from within the legal team. It's funny, I haven't told this story in a while, but I reached a point where I was fed up with Microsoft, and this is in 2004, and I actually resigned. At the time, I was like, given, they said, look, you've got six weeks. If you can find another job within the organization, great, but, you know, figure it out. It was right around Thanksgiving of 2004, 2003, I can't remember. And we were at war with Iraq, and I wasn't in favor of the war. I, there was a candlelight vigil in Seattle all these people walking with candles trying to stop the war. And I, I remember just losing it, saying, that's not going to stop the war. And having a conversation with a friend at Microsoft afterwards, and, and he said, hey, you're the peacenik. They're looking for someone to go build relationships with governments in the Middle East. No one wants to take the job. It's based in Istanbul, Turkey. Why don't you do it? And, and again, it was one of these things like, oh, okay. The logic there really clicked for me. It was like, if, if I'm actually building relationships with governments in, in that part of the world, showing a different face of America, we're not going to be killing each other, hopefully. That was my theory of change at that point. And I spent quite a bit of effort convincing the hiring folks that I was the right person for the job. And a few months later, I was living in Istanbul. How was your wife to convince she saw how much I fell in love with this. She'd actually danced in Istanbul when she was younger. And so she knew the place. Wasn't that hard a convincing because we really, it, this was for me, it was like an ability to be an ambassador using technology as the language of exchange. Yeah. Right? You got excited about it. I got super excited about it. Yeah. yeah. Did it pan out to be as good as you were hoping it would be? I... Cannot take credit for any kind of peace in that region, but it was the best job of my life when I moved into it. I was passionate about what we were doing. I was engaging on so many different levels. And what, what was the surprise for me was I fell in love with Africa. 
because of the the need was so much higher you just see big change when you you go into an african country and government officials are all on on yahoo email addresses and you bring them into a centralized email system it's it's a game changer for them and then you start working towards education and health and other initiatives it was huge and and i was discovering a part of the world that i had never been to yeah it sounds quite eye opening it was it was wonderful yeah and we left istanbul and we went to singapore and then spent 5 years in singapore looking after more greater asia which was also a completely different environment this included india japan australia new zealand and then all the southeast asian countries it, it's quite varied did you like that as much i did in a totally different way population density is an issue you're in singapore you liked it you learned a lot there what made you leave Microsoft? Um, so again, it gets, it gets very personal here. But in uh, 2011, my wife got sick. Oh, no. Yeah. And in 2013, she passed away. And so and we, were, we were still based in Singapore. We actually chose to kind of go through that whole process there. She actually died in a clinic in Germany. When I got back to Singapore after that, I, I stayed in the job for, for another year, but I was, I, was, I was done. I knew my job inside out and backwards, and so it was a system that kept me going. And then this was right around the, the time that Satya was coming into Microsoft. And then in, in 2014, there was an elegant exit that was presented, and I took it. I then sort of floated for about nine months. And in that process, I joined the board of an organization that looked at how to incorporate constituent voice or feedback in the process of engagement and of in social initiatives, which had always been a really interesting question for me. And through the guy that was running that company, this is Keystone Accountability, he knew my predecessor at Charity Navigator. And when there was a CEO change, he also knew my situation quite well. And he said, you know, they're looking for a retired IBM person uh, to kind of take them to the next level from a, from a technology and an innovation perspective. Maybe they'll take someone from Microsoft. Do you want to meet? It was, again, one of these really sort of fortuitous events. They hadn't even gone to a, um, a headhunter yet. We met. There was synergy and, you know, at that time it was funny. There was, um, when bad things happen, I think we want to go home. And I'd been living overseas for 10 years. I wanted to go home. And so I, I came back to New York and it was a combination of sort of something new. And I guess the other piece from a pure personal career perspective, I really wanted to see what it was like to be a CEO. I'd never done that. None of the tech companies were going to offer me that. I had yeah. options, but that was, um, and so that challenge attracted me, going home attracted me. And ultimately, if you think about what Charity Navigator does and our ability to, I mean, we're such a terrific lever for change because if we're able to help donors find higher performing organizations and the dollars go there, then ultimately a lot of our social problems should improve. What was the quick history of Charity Navigator up to the point where you come in? Sure. 
Charity Navigator was founded a little over 20 years ago. Basically, Pat Dugan was a man who came into significant wealth. He started giving back. And when he did, he, he realized, oh, there's, where, where do I go to actually know who's any good? His wife also was involved in, in the giving process, and they inadvertently gave to a couple of organizations that got into some high-level scandals. This got Pat really angry, and he was, let's fix this. And so he created Charity Navigator pretty much in the spirit of Morningstar Financials. Realized that the tax form for charities in the United States is a public document. Let's collect those. Let's do an analysis and issue a rating. So ultimately, at the beginning, it was a financial analysis of how organizations spent their money. First CEO was Trent Stamp. He really got the organization off the ground. And also part of what was happening at that time was there were some negative issues. And so there was this accountability piece of holding the charitable sector accountable to be good stewards of donor dollars. Ken Berger was the next CEO who came in and he ran the organizations for seven years before I came in. And Ken started to move us towards expanding the ratings to look at accountability and transparency metrics. They had started an initiative called Results Reporting, which was to look at how charities reported on their results. And that was part of what attracted me to Charity Navigator was, hey, this is cool stuff. We are going to try and assess impact. And how do we do that at scale, right? So great problem for someone with an engineering mind. As I was signing my contract, joining Charity Navigator, that project was put on hold. And uh, we actually ended up rethinking everything we did. But ultimately, what our mission has been to make impactful giving easier for everyone that means we've got to give you some assessment of impact or just basic organizational health. The current system as it exists today looks at four key areas, leadership and adaptability. In other words, do they have a plan? Is that plan available to you? Culture and community is looking at more constituent voice. Do you listen? Do you incorporate feedback in your process of improvement? Internal DEI metrics. So we're looking at, are you an equitable organization with your own people? And then finance and accountability is still looking at the IRS data. So we still do look at the finances. We want to know that the organization is going to be here next year and that they're running a clean operation. And then finally, when we're able to do it, we do an assessment of a cost per outcome of the impact that the organization is having. It's a much more complex system right now but still rolls up into a zero to four stars. I guess the other data point I should give you on this is that when I joined Charity Navigator, we were rating 8,000 organizations. We're currently rating just under 200,000. And we're doing this all for free. It's free to the charity, it's free to the donor, which is also sort of one of our founding principles. And we are also a nonprofit. I'm familiar with Robin Hood Foundation in New York, which has economists and team on staff that does a lot of evaluation metrics in the poverty area in New York and trying to figure out basically what's the biggest bang for your buck in where their dollars can go. And is it a similar sort of calculation? To me, it seems like a challenging thing. I mean, I, I know a little bit about the world of evaluation of 
nonprofits and other enterprises. It's not an easy thing to do well. It's not. And, um, you know, when I say we have we have ratings, we have basic information on, well, we have the full IRS uh, database, right, which is 1.6 million. But we have ratings on just under 200,000. That's based on the IRS data. The ones that we've been able to do an impact assessment, it's on very specific, what we call program service area. It's a known intervention that has strong academic literature behind it. We look at the what the, the average cost is for that specific outcome. So, you know, an example I like to use is cataract surgery, right? You're preserving eyesight. So we know the outcome is eyesight. The intervention is cataract surgery. We then factor out other variables between organizations so that we can actually come up with what's your, what's your basic cost per outcome as compared to, you know, charity A versus charity B versus the mean, and then also do a comparison to a hypothetical counterfactual, which would be if there was no cataract surgery, what would the impact on blindness be in this particular community? So needless to say, that's a pretty labor-intensive we can do it for specific program areas that we actually have data on. That's limited us. We've got about 1,500 impact assessments right now, and we're growing that. We're also growing through partnerships and through licensing in from others that are doing similar work. This is a long, long journey that we're on. I think I read somewhere that you acquired a firm that was doing impact analysis. Is that the core of where this is coming from? Correct. One of the co-founders of that organization came out of Robinhood. So, <laughs> so connecting the circles there. Yeah, yeah. connecting the circles. So, um, you know, it was, it was, it was. He was the president of the organ, Michael Weinstein, and Dean Carlin and Elijah Goldberg were the two founders of that organization and really built it. It's not quite in the realm of effective altruism, which is really looking at the most effective interventions, but it's heavily inspired by. How big of a organization is it now? I got a sense of how many ratings and, and charities you are overseeing, but are there a lot of people employed? How big of an enterprise is it? No, we're, we've doubled since I've been here, but we're 35 people. So it's still pretty small. How about the competitive landscape? Because from what I can tell, there's there's a number of somewhat similar uh, groups that you can sort of donate through or or research nonprofits. How do you see that space and how do you distinguish yourself from the others? A couple of key points. One of the unique elements of Charity Navigator as compared to some of our competition are that we are free. So we're not charging you. We also facilitate the giving process, right? So we have a giving basket that allows you to make a direct donation. The only charge that you're going to get on that is what your credit card takes from you, right? But we're not we're not making money on that. So we're free. We're scale. So free to the charity, free to the donor. We're sometimes called infomediaries. So we're kind of the bridge between the, the donor and the nonprofit. We're taking a stand and saying this is a four-star organization versus a three-star. Some of the other platforms aren't actually doing a rating. They're, they're collecting information and they're saying, we have this amount of information and they, they actually get badges for their information. 
but it's quantities of data. It's not, um, it's not an assessment. So I think those are some of the major differences. I have a particular interest in sort of a subset of nonprofits that are in the political space. Okay. I hadn't had a chance to see to what degree you guys cover them. They tend to be often smaller, but they are in the sort of what they call the soft side in politics typically, and they do voter engagement or registration. They're kind of fitting into that place in the tax code in the political system. Is that something that ends up in your database or are you sort of outside of that typically? If they're 501c3, which is yeah. the technical... They're C3s and C4s, typically. We don't rate, and we and we can't actually facilitate a donation to a C4, but we do rate the C3s. One thing, going back to the impact assessment, for example, policy engagement or policy change, that's a real bear to try and figure out. So we're not touching that right now from an impact assessment. We're not qualified. And I don't really know. That one's a tough one. I think we, we, we have all the other metrics that people can use in their decision making, but not impact for advocacy. What's changing in the charity world currently? Like over the time you've been CEO, I have a sense from outside that even though it's not the fastest moving part of the economy, there are uh, substantial changes going on. What do you see? The biggest and loudest one is McKinsey Scott. And this whole notion of trust-based philanthropy, where she has really just come in and blown the world away by doing her own research herself, and then just bestowing these incredibly generous gifts on, on organizations within the areas that she cares about, that is having a little bit of a ripple effect. Could someone find out through Charity Navigator which groups she had given to? Absolutely. And in fact, she just went live with a, she put, I think so many people were asking that question that they preemptively set up a website where they're showing who they gave to and based on the charity's discretion, how much was given to them. So there's her site is what you're saying, but through your, through your interface, is that something? Our interface, we don't, we haven't tagged her who she gave to. We didn't put together a list of who she gave to. We did do an analysis of um, who she gave to and how they rate. Yeah, how are they doing? How is she doing? From your she's doing great. Um, you know, and there and there, but there are also several organizations. Go back to your C three C four question. She's also giving to C fours. She's also giving to um, organizations that are either too new or too small that we don't have a rating on. There also is a bit of a a skepticism in some analysts that you're probably aware of as to whether or not when these billionaires are donating. And I think she's an exception because of the scale. And there's an idea that maybe they're not helping that much. They should be paying more taxes. Any thoughts about donations on that high end scale versus a lower end scale and how no. much? Yeah, I, I can speak a little bit to it. And, and ultimately, we exist to, from my perspective, democratize philanthropy and make it easier for you and me to make a significant difference. In the same way, we're trying to provide tools to everyday donors that allow them to make similar decisions to someone that's got paid staff to do the work. 
the challenge that I think some of the the really wealthy donors have come under is that you know they you'll create a foundation and then you'll put out a minimum amount every year, which is not that meaningful. Where McKinsey Scott's kind of going to blown the numbers out by giving away billions. There's those donor advice funds that are sitting on huge amounts of money. They are the people already got the tax break for putting the money into them, and then they're not necessarily putting it to work. This is an interesting one. I did some research on this um, last year, sort of towards the end of last year, because there's this comes up in policy discussions a lot. In other words, we've got to do something about donor advised funds. The data actually shows that donor advised funds put more money into the actual working nonprofits than the private foundations do. Because the private foundations have a legal requirement of, I think it's five and a half percent or something. Whereas the donor advised funds, the better ones will actually force you to give if your money's dormant for a certain amount of time. The average amount, I think it's closer to, I don't want to give a number because I don't remember it right now, but it's, it's almost twice that of the private foundations. So the money is going back. That said, there's still huge amounts sitting there. There's still a lot of money sitting in these funds. It's funny. This is one of the things that I'm hopeful for right now with the economic situation we're in. There's, there's concern that the charitable sector is going to suffer as, as a result. Generally, we do. But I'm hoping that the money that's parked in the donor advised funds will find its way to the charities when people are asked to give at the end of the year, because that money is no longer your money. And I think that's something people forget. It's not your money. It belongs to charity. (laughs) I think that's right. You talked about sort of democratizing philanthropy. I'm not even sure what you meant by that. What are you talking about? There are a couple of things. Um, Access to tools and information that can make you a philanthropist, right? I think the word philanthropy has a connotation of wealthy individual. Everybody gives. I haven't seen anybody that doesn't give, even if it's just a dime to someone on the street. People want to give in a way that makes a difference. I believe that you know through the tools that we've, we're creating, we're helping people be philanthropists in a, in a way that's actually impactful. So that that's one part of it. The other part of it is it's more a data discussion, which is around making sure that the information is there and freely available so that everyone who wants to make sense of it and make use of it has access to it. So charitable data sometimes has been sort of given to certain certain organizations and then it sits there. So to go back to the foundations, foundations have been pretty demanding to charities to submit complex application forms and then pretty significant reporting. That information is all proprietary to the foundation, which is a little bit like going to a doctor and essentially taking off your clothes and being examined and them owning all of the information they find about your body versus that's your data. As a working charity, that should be your information. And I really think it's important that we find ways for that data to be freely available and also reshared. So, you know, go back to sort of a, a tech paradigm, which is, you know, write it once, use it many times. That's really what we would hope to enable. When you look at the data about people who are giving through your systems, what are the patterns that you see? The stereotype in my head is, there's a natural disaster. People give for a while around that. 
I don't know what other things are driving the patterns of giving, but what, what do you see? If I think about it, last year's data, relief, relief organizations were a big part of it. A lot of that was stimulated by the war in Ukraine. So there was a huge uptick in, in giving yeah, for, that makes for sense. Ukraine. So it, it does, I would say the big trends that we see do tend to be, they do tend to follow the, the headlines, social justice. The one that's, I, I find it's not so much in the headlines, but it's, um, it's sort of number two in terms of search, it's environment. I'm excited by that because I'm, I'm also an environmentalist to a certain extent. We've had storms, but we... Does, does much money go through you into like climate justice organizations, organizations that are trying to advocate around government policy, having to do with climate, things like that? So probably the bigger ones would be like National Wildlife Federation and Nature Conservancy. and B- so Big environmental organizations. Big environmental. That climate is like a piece of what they do. It is. What what we offer, which I think this is an area where we could, um, it's interesting because we want to promote informed giving, but we're also not trying to influence, we're not trying to bring our own biases into what we're doing with the ratings or how we present the information. But what we tend to do, for example, when there's a, when there's a crisis, we'll put together a curated list of highly rated organizations that are engaged in that specific crisis. And that's how many of the smaller organizations that actually have a decent rating are able to be discovered. Going back to climate justice, well, this is the other piece of what's changing. It's the equity story. A lot of these, because they're small, they're invisible. And one of the things that I believe our platform can do is actually help an organization raise its profile to the public and be discovered. I guess when you're CEO of an organization, people always ask you, where are you going with this organization? I mean, obviously you're working on measuring impact and sharing that information. What do you want to do over the long term to improve Charity Navigator, make it more useful and more impactful? This is a long journey for us. As I, you know, I mentioned, we have the sort of the four quadrants or the four beacons that we have that, um, that we are rating organizations on, that's unevenly populated right now. So we have a lot that are just rated on financials. I want to have a cohesive rating system that is really telling you a story that helps you find an organization that's addressing a need you care about and is doing it effectively. That's with regard to the rating. Also, given my own international experience, I do have international aspirations for Charity Navigator. But I've been humbled by the difficulty of the job just nationally. So <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. <laughs> that's not going to happen overnight. But the other thing that's, and this is a big shift that we've had just in our own, in the, the experience that you have on Charity Navigator, the website, and that is to make the experience more intuitive. So you want to you support an organization in the South Bronx in New York that's doing after-school programs for teenage girls and that it's run by a BIPOC leader, I want you to be able to put that query into our website and find the organization you're looking for. Yeah, that makes sense. The last piece, of you, because you got me going on this one, is we have an API or an application interface which allows us to have our ratings show up in other platforms. I would love to see our ratings. When you go to your DAF, uh, your donor advice fund, and you're looking for an organization, I would like our ratings to show up there. Um, and, and in other platforms. Yeah. I'd be kind of curious, like for this, 
for the kinds of political nonprofits that I'm interested in, whether you have them rated and whether maybe we can pull that out of your system and how these kind of orgs are doing, because a lot of them are fairly small. I don't know how small you go down to in terms of coming up with a star rating, but I might check that out. I'm wondering how you think about the, like if, if the goal is to, as you kind of articulated at the beginning, if the goal is to kind of solve a bunch of societal problems, it's hard for me not to see that through a political lens. And when the country is in a bit of a battle right now between one party that has some interest in solving societal problems and another one that has fallen under the spell of some right-wing authoritarian political leaders and doesn't show a lot of signs of escaping that web, at least in the short run, does any of that kind of acute problem that's facing the country find its way into what you're doing? I can imagine you dodging that because politics is such a sticky thing for your world, but what happens with the government policies, depending on who's in charge, and if democracy is really undermined here, all of those goals that a lot of your charities have are at risk. Well, there are a couple of things. Being a 501c3, we we have to be careful about expressing political views or, or siding with one camp or another. And we try and keep that out of what we do. You know, if, if you break the law, we'll shut you down, right? And, and one, one element of our ratings is a negative rating, right? We have an advisory system where if inappropriate behavior is happening or you've been accused of it, we make the donors aware of that. And a lot of that information is based on attorney generals and the IRS and other law enforcement agencies. So we, we do have that um, built into the system. We grapple with this because, as you can imagine, nonprofit, as, as a rule, I, I would say generally nonprofit employees tend to lean left in their political views. And so there we have our personal views, but we're also really trying not to bring our own personal views and biases into the ratings or into the information. And so that's that's been challenged. And I'll, I'll give you an example of that from last year with the Roe versus Wade change. We put together a what we call a hot topic or a give now list, which was looking at organizations that are addressing both sides of that equation. So we're, we're trying to provide a balanced view because the donors, the thing that's interesting about Charity Navigator is I believe that our from our own analysis, our user base is pretty split left and right across the nation. We're trying to help people find the organizations they want to support without bringing our own biases into it. And I'm also hoping, because of the polarized nature of our of our country, and particularly on the political spectrum, a lot of times we go from we go to no dialogue, right? Or I'm going to cancel you in this in this discussion. For me, that doesn't work. Canceling is, we need dialogue. And so I would hope that our platform could could have both um, or as many views as are out there represented within the legal structure of a 501c3 charity. It sounds like a pretty interesting place to be. Does this seem like something you want to keep doing for a long time? Are you tiring of it? Where are you? Actually, I'm having a lot of fun right now. It took me a while to get to get a really good team and I think we have an amazing team right now. And it, because of the, we just 
relaunched our website, uh, did some big changes to the rating system. I feel as though we're at the starting line again. And so that's got me, that's got me excited and very, very optimistic. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? I don't think so. I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground. This is good. Yeah, no, I appreciate you talking to me. Um, anything else you want to say? The one thing I'd say is, you know, and, and this does tie into how I've lived my life, but also how I give in my own giving. And that is, it's this idea of, you know, follow your heart, use your head and try and make a difference in the world. And so it's, it's a combination of the bring the head and the heart together. Giving is very emotional and the, what, what motivates us to give and, or the causes that grab us, they literally grab us by the heart and you've got to go do something about it, but use your head when you go do something about it. Yeah, hopefully people can use your site to make that combination. That's the goal. In other words, what you care about is your business. We're going to help you find a great organization that's doing something in that area. Well, thanks, Michael, for your time. That was Michael Thatcher. He's at charitynavigator.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.